Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. In this episode, you'll get a brief introduction to the contributions of Martin Luther and John Calvin to the initiation and spread of the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. Essentially, in this episode, I cover the bare minimum basics about these two men. There are entire courses dedicated to each Martin Luther and John Calvin and their voluminous writings as well as the many events that they were involved in during their lifetimes. However, in this class, the approach I'm taking is to just give you a brief sketch of each and then fill in more details in later episodes as they become relevant. This is Lecture 2 of a History of Christianity class called 500, covering church history from Martin Luther to Joel Osteen. Here now is Podcast 117, Luther and Calvin. Welcome back. This is number two, Martin Luther and John Calvin. And if I can get through both of these men in 45 minutes, we'd be having a good day. Obviously, I'm going to have to limit my remarks and not do a full biography. I actually listened to a biography about Martin Luther that was over an hour long, and the guy only talked about one aspect of Martin Luther the whole time. Like Erasmus, Martin Luther wrote thousands and thousands and thousands of pages. And there's just no way to cover the man in total in this, in this format. Uh, John Calvin, likewise, has written just voluminously. But instead, what I'm going to do is cover what I need to cover, what I absolutely need to cover in order to make sense of the story moving forward, and then fill in little gaps here and there as I need to next week and the week after. The current number for him on the, is 75 million Lutherans in the world today, at least that I could tell from the websites that I looked at. His numbers are all approximate. And so <clears throat> 75 million. So compared to 1.6 billion, 75 million is not that many. But it's still a lot. It's still a, a, a sizable group. Of, uh, of people that bear the name Luther to this day. So, I mean, this guy lived 500 years ago, but there are still people that are, that are carrying his name as their, their church designation 500 years later. That is impressive in itself. But before Luther, you know what there were? There were Catholics. After Luther, you know what there were? There were Catholics, Lutherans, Reformed people, and there were all kinds of other groups that we're going to talk about called the Anabaptists and Evangelical Rationalists and Spiritualists. And then within just a little while longer, a whole bunch of other groups. Martin Luther, because of, of what he did in the times in which he lived, he opened up new ways of being Christian without getting killed for it, which is what happened to John Huss and which is what they would have done to John Wycliffe if they could have gotten to him. So anyhow, Martin Luther, in 1505, his daddy wanted him to be a lawyer. Thought he'd make a good living. His dad was a copper miner. He wanted his son to be a lawyer, sent him to school, saved, and 
One day when Martin Luther was riding on his horse through an open field, a sudden storm caught him and lightning bolts flashed about him and it so closely hit him that it actually knocked him off his horse. The lightning knocked him off his horse. At which point he cried out, Saint Anne, save me and I will become a monk. So he survived, and then after about two weeks, he turned himself into the monastery and became a monk. His dad didn't like that so much. But he had made an oath, and it was a prayer, and he felt it had been answered. So later on, he, he would very much regret this, because he, he came to not believe in prayer to the saints. In fact, Martin Luther didn't even believe the saints were alive. He believed in the sleep of the dead. But at that point... Uh, Martin Luther cried out to St. Anne, Save me and I will become a monk. So he becomes an Augustinian monk. An Augustinian monk is, is a monk after a guy named Augustine who lived in the 400s and was very, very influential. So Martin Luther was somebody who... Nobody needed to tell Martin Luther that he was a guilty sinner. He knew that in his bones and he obsessed over it. He confessed and confessed and confessed his sins in the monastery hour after hour after hour. He wore out his confessor. His confessor said, that's enough. I don't want to hear anymore. Martin Luther says, oh, wait, eins mehr, one more. You know, I've got another one here. And he would keep going and going and going. And so they, they, the way they dealt with the problem is they sent him to Wittenberg to study. Said, so, you know, maybe he needs some education, you know, get him, get, get him some help. So in 1511, he goes to study at Wittenberg. I don't remember if I put that in your notes or not, but 1511, he goes off to Wittenberg, which is a university. They had universities back then. And he studies Bible. And he becomes a professor of Bible at Wittenberg, 1512. He had a lot of schooling. I'm not going to go into his whole life. There's a lot to it. But what you need to know is that he becomes a professor of Bible at Wittenberg, or Wittenberg is how he would say it, and he stays a professor of Bible at Wittenberg his entire life. He never leaves. He never, you know, he travels around a little bit, but he, that's what he does. That's what he, what he finds to be his calling, and he never stops doing that. He doesn't become some great guru that has his own place. No, he's still a professor of Bible the whole time. And he's able to do what he does from that, from that uh, position. While he's a professor of Bible, at, at the same time, the local church asks him to be one of their main preachers. So he's not a pastor, per se, but he is preaching regularly at the local town church. Because they recognize Martin Luther's got some Bible skills. So, and and he, wants, he wants to put them in use for everyone, not just the students at the university, but for anyone that might be in the town of Wittenberg. And so he's preaching there. While he's preaching at this small village church, a gentleman named Tetzel comes through town selling indulgences. Indulgences, you have to kind of have a mindset in place here about what's called the treasury of merit. The treasury of merit. And so the idea is that, there, that most Christians never do enough good deeds to earn heaven. Most Christians. But there are some Christians that are truly exceptional. And these are the ones we call saints. And the saints are not 
only capable of getting themselves into heaven, but there is an excess of deeds that they accomplish that goes into this treasury that the Pope has control over. And so the Pope can apply deeds done by past saints that are this extra deeds that they've done to you or your, even your dead loved ones can apply it to them if, if he chooses to do it. And so purchasing one of these is what's called an indulgence. You purchase an indulgence to get a dead loved one out of purgatory and into heaven, or at least to shorten the amount of time that they will be there. And again, in their whole way of thinking, this all makes sense. However it sounds to us right now, this made sense to them. But Martin Luther, the thing that is so great about him and that, and that anchors him throughout all of this is that he's not a professor of church tradition. He's not a professor of history. He's a professor of what? Bible. So he knows if the book says it or not. Because he knows what the book says. In a time when people didn't know what the book says, Martin Luther knows what the book says. And he knows there's nothing about this in the book. And so he gets upset about it. And Martin Luther is not the kind of person to be shy when he's upset. So one of the famous uh, sayings of Tetzel was, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Now there's a salesman. He's selling these, and they're impoverished peasants, 65 to 90% of the population, right? Just, li just living on enough to survive. And they're scraping together their little coins, what little they have, and they're giving it to this guy. And do you know what he's doing with the money? He's, he's lining his own pockets. He's lining the pockets of the Prince Albert who gave the Pope permission to sell it in his province. And then the Pope's getting a whole bunch of that so that he can build St. Peter's Basilica, which currently stands in the Vatican today. That's where that building came from. That's how they financed it, by selling indulgences. Luther sees his own people that he loves getting taken advantage of, and he gets very upset. But he's a scholar, so he handles it in a scholarly manner by writing out theses, 95 theses, in Latin, which normal people can't read, and then he tacks them on the church door of the church at Wittenberg in the year 1517. So on October, the most important date of the whole class, October 31st, 1517, Halloween, which is also called Reformation Day, Martin Luther taxed the 95 theses on the church door of Wittenberg. Now at the time, nobody's thinking, oh wow, we've just spawned a new movement and everything's going to change. They're just thinking, oh, there's another set of academic documents tacked on the door, which is where they would be if you wanted to have a debate with other scholars in Latin. So they're not thinking anything of it. But some of these humanists come along and they're, they're all excited about these 95 theses because what's Martin Luther doing after all? He's going to the sources, the Bible, for his practice. And the indulgences aren't in the sources. And so they get all excited about it. And they translate it into German. And the printing press is out. So they run off pamphlets in German and disperse them around. And suddenly, we've got the beginnings of a movement. Because Martin Luther's 95 Theses are all lasered in on this one issue of indulgences. And he says things like, the Pope should just 
use his treasury of merit right now and free everyone that can be freed from purgatory. What's the point in buying these things? You know, and, he, and he makes all these logical cases for not doing it this way and that it's not historical and everything else. And he knows what the church fathers have said. He knows what the Bible says. And so he challenges it. And suddenly now it's in German and everybody's reading it and everybody's talking. Why? Because you've got this guy selling it and you've got people that think now they think they're being taken advantage of. And are they happy? No. They're, 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 they're really upset about it. There's one other thing I should mention about Martin Luther and the, the sort of coincidence of his time, which is that the German princes, there wasn't, it wasn't really a united country. It was more like controlled by different provinces. The princes had control over different provinces. I mean, yeah, there was the Emperor Charles, but each province had its own prince. They didn't really like the idea of giving all their money to Italy. For them, it's like, you know, who are these Italians anyhow? No offense, Don. But like, who are these Italians? We're Germans. They're Italians. Why should we give them our money? Why don't they give us money? Or, I mean, why, why is it like, why are we taking all the money out of this, of this country and sending it over there? And so there was already that feeling when this publication hit the market and people got really excited. So Luther's goal, just to be clear, was not to start a new denomination. And it was not even to challenge the Roman Catholic Church on everything. It was just to fix this one issue on indulgences. But that became the beginning of everything. Uh, two things to mention that he, as time goes on, he develops and he strongly propounds. These are both Latin phrases. Sola fide means by faith alone, or just faith alone. And then scripture alone. Faith alone and scripture alone. These are two radical concepts that Martin Luther makes to be the center of his belief system. He does not locate the center of authority in the priest, in the bishop, or in the pope. He locates it in the book. He says the authority comes from the book. It doesn't come from the church. It comes from the Bible. And faith alone is to do with his discovery about salvation he wrestled and wrestled and wrestled about this issue. I wish I could say more about it, but uh, we'd run out of time. Uh, about the righteousness of God. And he understood the righteousness of God in Romans 1.17 to be a reference to God's righteous act of judgment over you as a sinner. And he came to despise God as a monk. He came to hate God because he, know, he knew he could never live up to God's standards and he knew there was nothing that he could do to make everything right, and he was always going to screw up. And so he started to really hate God until he read and he read and he banged his head against that text and the, and the context, and he discovered that it was by faith that you're made justified or righteous, and it's not of works. And so this is his great discovery, and he says, Ah, oh, I get it at last. It's not by doing the good things. It's not by doing the seven sacraments. It's not by confessing all my sins. I just have to believe it. And he, and he takes that Catholic pendulum, which was works, 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 and swings it as far the other side as you possibly can to faith, 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 faith. No works at all as far as salvation is concerned. A lot of this comes to a head when he has a debate with a man named Johann Eck. I think I have that in your notes. Do I? Johann Eck, in the year 1519, 
is the, the, the papal representative sent to deal with Martin Luther. And see, the goal of Johann Eck is not to straighten Martin Luther out. It's to get Martin Luther to convict himself as a heretic. Because if he can get him to do that, he can discredit him and his movement's dead because Martin Luther, more than likely, will be dead if you get convicted as a heretic. So anyhow, this is a, uh, a quote I have for you in there. On July 4th, Luther came into the debate. Eck prodded him with charges of being a Hussite and a Bohemian. Why do you think he would say that? Because John Huss was saying similar things to Martin Luther a century before, and he was already known as a heretic of the church. He was burned at the stake in 1415. Now it's 1519, so it's about a century later. So he's like, you're a Hussite and a Bohemian. Now you know what that means. You can call your friends that when they're being rude. This was tantamount to being labeled a communist in the 1950s because this area still recalled the numbers of Germans expelled from Bohemia during the Hussite revolt. Luther protested X charges, but finally went to the library and looked up Huss's teachings. When he returned, he stated that many of the condemned Hussite articles were truly Christian and evangelical and ought not to be condemned by the church. After a moment of shocked silence, there was an uproar. Eck pressed on and got Luther to state that both the papacy and councils may err. This was an immediate triumph for Eck. After this, Karlstadt returned to take up the debate again, but Duke George was anxious to bring the whole thing to a close. This is from a, a textbook. I've got a footnote for you if you want to look it up further. And so there were really three things that Johann Eck got Martin Luther to admit to. Number one is that he agreed with John Huss, making him a Hussite and, by association, a heretic. What happened to Huss? He was burned at the stake. So if you, can, if you can get that label to stick on somebody else, your problem's solved, right? The goose is cooked. Thank you, Steve. Number two, he, he gets him to admit that the Pope may err. The Pope can make mistakes, which to you may seem obvious. But <laughs> in this context, when you're in a, a sort of a Catholic court, that's a big deal. And then number three, that the councils may err. So he's a, he's a Hussite. He believes the Pope can make mistakes or, and, and get things wrong, even important things, and that the councils also may err. And so Luther is thankful to, to Eck for having pushed him so hard because he didn't think he would ever realize the implication of what he had discovered without this ultra-Catholic guy beating on him. But he realizes, you know what, that's right. Huh, I guess we were all wrong. And he starts promoting this new understanding. And as a result, the uh, Pope Leo, he releases a bull. A bull is a, a formal proclamation issued by a pope that's got a certain kind of seal on it called a bulla. And so that's why it's called a bull. It's got nothing to do with the animal. A lot of animals coming up today, the diet of worms and whatnot. But uh, anyhow, so he issues a bull, which is a formal declaration saying, a wild pig has invaded the Lord's vineyard. So that's trash talk, right? And so that happens in the year 1520. When Luther receives this official church document from Rome, he scoffs at it, tears it up, and burns it in front of everyone. At this point, he gets officially excommunicated in 1521. You know, it takes a while for a word to get back and forth. 
And there's no other churches to go to, and getting excommunicated is, is a huge deal in their, in their world. But in Wittenberg, they let him keep coming to church. Right? So he's, not, he's excommunicated officially by the Italian Pope, but the German prince, Frederick of Saxony, who's protecting him, who's his, his immediate sovereign, says, oh, you, you know, keep going to church. There's no problem here. And so there's a little bit of a tension. So what happens is the Diet of Worms. Worms is a place, and a diet is an official uh, gathering of, of people or a council. Uh, it has nothing to do with eating worms. It's a legislative assembly from the Latin word dieta, meaning a day's work. It just happens that for English speakers, it sounds like you're eating worms. But anyhow, a diet, diet of worms is this uh, official moment when Luther must stand before not just the Catholic representatives, but the German princes and the Emperor Charles himself and make his stand or fold. So that's, that's his, his great moment when he looks the whole thing in the eye. And I have a video clip for you to show you and dramatize this a little bit. Will you recant or will you not? Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer. Unless I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves. My conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. not going to recant. He's, he's going to stay, stand fast. Just an incredible moment of boldness there. Do you see a lot, a lot of the themes that I've been talking about? Scripture alone, how the popes can err, the councils can err. He says, prove it to me by Scripture. He's a professor of Bible. And so what we have then is him riding away from this council, this diet of worms, and he's now a condemned man, and it's just a matter of time until the sentence gets passed and executed. One of the older gentlemen it kept flashing to that kind of looked like he was dressed like Santa Claus, Frederick of Saxony did, is he sent out his own men dressed as thugs on horses and kidnapped Martin Luther and brought him to his own castle at Wartburg and hid him away until things passed over a little bit. And so Martin Luther gets whisked away to this castle and while he's there what does he do? He translates the Bible from Greek, from Erasmus' Greek New Testament, into German. And he spends his time translating the Bible and writing more books after he just had this whole confrontation. And he grows out a beard, and he, and he doesn't tell anyone where he is. Everyone, they don't know what happened to him. Did he die? Is he gone? Where, where did he go? This is what happens. Things die down a little bit, and Frederick of Saxony and the other German princes, 
basically agree nobody's going to do anything about the Luther issue. Nobody's going to listen to what others want them to do. Nobody's going to send a, uh, you know, a, a lynchman out to him at the midnight hour. Nobody's going to mess with him at all so long as he stays in the territory and, and he doesn't, you know, if he traveled outside of the country, he's a marked man. He'll get killed. Uh, his protector, Frederick, guards over him. At the age of 42, 41 or 42, Luther decides that he comes out of hiding and he decides that he wants to get married. A group of nuns, which uh, I'll give you the three reasons why he wanted to get married in just a second, but there was a group of nuns that got uh, whisked out of a convent, escaped a convent in the barrels of herring, fish barrels, so it's kind of gross, but they, they, they escaped the convent, and one of them is uh, Katerina von Bora. She's 26 years old, he's 42, and he decides, boy, this is a fine-looking nun, I want to marry her. And uh, his three reasons for marrying her is, one, it would please his father, who, Lord knows, has been through enough. You know, he wanted his boy to be a lawyer, and then he became a monk, and now he's at the center of all this controversy, and so he wants to do it to please his father, to provoke the Pope, and to pass on his name. So this is three reasons for getting married to her. He comes to conclude that the Pope is not just mistaken, he's not just off track, but the Pope and the whole system of the papacy is actually the Antichrist of Scripture. And he starts publishing works that call the Pope, the current Pope and all past Popes, the Antichrist system that is against God. And he's very, very bold. He gets bolder and bolder because he's already faced the whole thing head on, and he's still here. So anyhow, he has six kids with Katharina, and then he adopts four more. The whole time he's a professor, except for that little stint, about a year or so he was at the, uh, the castle. The whole time he's a professor of Bible, and he's preaching at this church, and he preaches something like a sermon every two and a half days. So he's preaching, preaching, preaching the whole time. He's writing book after book after book, and he's a family man. He's got six kids. He's got four more he adopts. Uh, there's this one story about Luther where they make fun of him for hanging up. Back then, you didn't have disposable diapers, so you're, he's hanging them up on the line, and his neighbors are cracking jokes on him. Look, here's the guy that's igniting this whole movement, and he's doing what? He's hanging up dirty diapers, or yeah, I guess they're clean by then, on the uh, clothesline. In 1524, this massive thing happens called the Peasants' War. That's 1524 to what? 1525. So the peasants get in their head. See, now, what's Luther attacking? He's attacking not just religion. For them, religion and the government are all mixed and intertwined. There's no such thing as separation of church and state. So he's attacking the system, isn't he? He's saying the, 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 the captain at the top of the system, the pope, is the Antichrist. The bishops are corrupt. The monks are corrupt. Celibacy is wrong. Praying to the saints is wrong. You know, he's, he's, he's systematically attacking not just what they're thinking of as religion, but their world. And so the peasants are like, you know what else is wrong? The fact that I'm a peasant, and I'm not wearing one of those cool red outfits with a nice hat, you know, and I'm out here with a pitchfork in the hot sun, and I'm not making any money. And so the peasants' war flares up, and Luther has to make a decision. He has to either throw his lot in with the peasants, who are inspired by Luther and are claiming him as their leader, or come out against them and possibly lose 
you know, any credibility he had with the common man. What he decides to do is write this book that I have an excerpt for you in your notes called Against the Murderous Thieving Hordes of Peasants. Which side did he take? The side of the nobility and the knights who uh, very shortly crushed and, and, and killed, slaughtered all the peasants that were in this conflict. This is Martin Luther at his worst. Okay, just so you don't think there are any heroes other than Jesus that are all good. The peasants have taken upon themselves the burden of three terrible sins against God and man. By this they have merited death in body and soul. They have sworn to be true and faithful, submissive and obedient to their rulers. Now deliberately and violently breaking this oath, they are starting a rebellion and are violently robbing and plundering monasteries and castles which are not theirs. They have doubly deserved death in body and soul as highwaymen and murderers. They cloak this terrible and horrible sin with the gospel. Thus they become the worst blasphemers of God and slanderers of His holy name. So he supports the knights, and the knights go in and they slaughter the peasants. Martin Luther provides the rationale behind the slaughter of all the peasants in this. I mean, there are lots more peasants, but just the ones that took up the sword or the pitchfork. Um, and all of this is so that the Catholics can't say, see what happens when you leave the church. You see what happens when you challenge tradition? This revolt is what happens. That's what was at stake in Luther's head was, I can't support this. I have to, I have to come out strong against it because otherwise the Catholics will say, hey, King of France, do you, do you really want to entertain these ideas? Look what happens. You get revolts. You want revolts? Or do you want to stay within the Catholic communion? And so Luther comes out against it very strongly. All right, John Calvin in 15 minutes or less. There he is, John Calvin. Pretty sweet beard, kind of pointy. 1509 to 1564. He's a French theologian. He, by the age of 12, is a child prodigy. He dedicates himself to the church. You see Martin Luther's hairdo? It's called a tonsure. That's where you, you buzz the top and then also the bottom. So you just have like a, a thin stripe of hair in the middle, and that's what the monks wore back then. And not because it was cool, but because it wasn't cool. And so, anyhow, he, he got that at 12, John Calvin. A 12-year-old kid says, no, I'm ready. I'm committed. Buzz my head. Let's do this. And he becomes the clerk to the bishop. He attends college. He studies philosophy and law. And he comes across humanism at the university. Humanism is encouraging him to go back to the sources, to uh, really check things out in Latin, not just church Latin or common Latin, but in classical Latin, classical Greek. And so John Calvin learns both of those languages. In 1533, he has a religious conversion, which I, I have a little quote for you in there about what that was like. You can read on your own. I've got to kind of cruise here. While he's at the university, he, he, uh, university of Paris, his friend starts making statements that sound awfully like Martin Luther and awfully like a Protestant, and Calvin has to flee because he would be guilty by association. And so Calvin ends up fleeing because his friend makes these comments at the university. And before long, Calvin finds himself convinced of Martin Luther's ideas. Now, Calvin's younger than Martin Luther. Martin's born in the 1480s. John's born in 1509, almost 1510. So there's a, a gap between the two. What John Calvin does is, in many ways, more influential than what Martin Luther does. 
as far as sustaining the movement that started. Because once Martin Luther dies, he dies. You know, other people are taking over here and there, but it's, it's a largely a German movement. It's, it's not really going everywhere else. And so John Calvin really gets this thing cooking internationally. In 1536, he comes out with his magnum opus, Institutes of the Christian Religion. It's a multi-volume work that explains Christianity. It's a full manual on explaining what Christianity is, and he works on it and produces new editions and new editions and new editions for the rest of his life, and that's his final contribution to the library of Christian literature. I have some extensive quotes for you about Geneva. Now, Geneva is a city in Switzerland that John Calvin ends up going to. There was a man there named William Farrell who invited John Calvin to go there. John, John Calvin is, is kind of a bookish nerd. He, he's not really interested in, in getting involved with people. <laughs> he just really wants to be alone and write his Institutes of the Christian Religion and study the Bible and study other things. And this William Farrell guy convinces him to go to Geneva, or to come to Geneva and to be their resident pastor slash theologian. He does that for a little while, and then they kick him out because John Calvin is very strict, and they're, they're not going to have it. And so John Calvin's like, all right, forget you guys, and he, and he moves on. And then there's a change in the government at Geneva, and they invite him back, and, and Calvin's like, I'm not coming back to you. You kicked me out. And they said, no, we'll, we'll give you anything you want. You write your own contract and, and just come back. We, we were wrong. We were listening to the wrong people. We have a new city council. We, we want you, John Calvin. So John writes his own contract. Now, you, remember, you have to remember, John Calvin was originally a law student. So he knows law. He knows contract. And he's going to write himself a very good deal with this city, uh, Geneva. And one other thing. His goal is to export the Reformation, his particular brand of it. So he wants to found a city and have it be a city on a hill and have people come in and visit and train up missionaries and send them out. And so he's going to be stationary, but everyone else is going to be looking at his city as an example of how great the world could be if only you adopted this belief about Christianity. And so this is from... Lawrence and Nancy Goldstone, Out of the Flames, is their book. And I'll, I'll speak more about Michael Servetus and all that later. But anyhow, it reads, So finally, Calvin agreed to come back. But this time, he got a contract. It was a very good contract. He wrote it himself. It was called Ecclesiastical Ordinances of the Church of Geneva. And it was among the most ambitious, comprehensive, and oppressive sets of laws ever to be enacted voluntarily by any community. It was Calvin's old articles now made both broader and more specific, written by a man who understood the law thoroughly and had the upper hand. The ordinances of 1541 and their subsequent companion laws were Calvin's prescription for the perfect society. He intended Geneva to act as a standard bearer in the quest for the restoration of the godly life on earth. Calvin's reforms worked. Murder, mayhem, prostitution, General lawlessness were so greatly reduced that the city acquired a reputation as a paragon of piety, sobriety, and hard work. Protestants all over Europe viewed Calvin's Geneva as epitomizing the superiority of reform over the corruption of Catholicism. 
Geneva, rather than Basel, became the destination for wealthy and educated French religious refugees, and the city's population swelled with the minority immigres. But order, as it always does, came with a price. That's a great line, isn't it? The world is wicked, Calvin insisted, and the wicked require discipline. This, too, was provided for in the ordinances. The most significant element of Calvin's new regime was the enactment of his old plan to establish an official network of spies. Imagine this. A religious secret police. A group of laymen approved by Calvin became responsible for ferreting out the sins of the rest of the community and reporting them to the authorities. On a weekly basis, any whose behavior fell short of the required standard was brought to Calvin's attention. The police operated on commission. Now here's a brilliant idea. A portion of any fines assessed as punishment went to them. So he's got secret police that are policing not just crimes, but also anything that Calvin would consider a sin. The practical result of all this godly work was the Geneva, which had previously enjoyed its beer and wine, its prostitutes, its gambling, suddenly found itself the Singapore of the 16th century. Nathaniel uh, Weiss, a 19th century French freethinker, described Calvin's Geneva in these words. This may be slightly exaggerated, but I think it gets to the point of what it must have been like. So these are his words. One burger burger's a citizen. One burger smiled while attending a baptism, three days imprisonment. Another, tired out on a hot summer day, went to sleep during the sermon, prison. That, now, see, now that's not a bad rule. I can see that one. Some of you are a little sleepy right now. You know, we could have secret police. and Some working men ate pastry at breakfast, three days on bread and water. Two burgers played scuttles, prison. A blind fiddler played a dance, expelled from the city. A girl was caught skating. A widow threw herself on the grave of her husband. A burger offered his neighbor a pinch of snuff during divine service. They were summoned before the consistory, exhorted and ordered to do penance. A burger said, Monsieur Calvin, instead of Maitre Calvin. A couple of peasants followed their ancient custom, talked about business matters coming to church. Prison, prison, prison. Two boatmen had a brawl in which no one was hurt, executed. Most savagely of all were punished any offenders whose behavior challenged Calvin's political and spiritual infallibility. So Calvin wanted Geneva to be the premier example of what a city is like that had the true faith. And he attracted lots of people and they were amazed at the low crime rate and he sent people and he trained them up and they spread his ideas everywhere. Now on your profile sheet, I did want to just mention some key points about his beliefs. Now, this is known as Reformed. John Calvin's movement is not Lutherans or Lutheranism. It's called the Reformed movement. It's also called Calvinists or Calvinism. I just put Reformed because that's the label they like to go by. There are, in the bottom right, 75 million, just like Lutherans, there are 75 million Reformed people today. Those are followers of John Calvin's teachings. The founder is John Calvin. Mistakes to avoid, way too much control. Inspiration, guy took it all seriously. My goodness, you, you re, I, I wish I uh, prepared more to say about John Calvin or had more time or whatever, but I mean, the guy was obsessed with the glory of God. I mean, he loved God with all his heart. I mean, he was doing it the best he could. It just so happened it came out the way it came out because he had some short-sightedness, some flaws. 
Reason for starting? Well, Luther's movement wasn't going far enough. So that's why we have the Reformed Church. It's not the same as the Lutherans. The Reformed are taking Luther's ideas to another level, the level of John Calvin. And so let me, let me be specific about what I mean. The acronym we typically use to talk about the system known as Calvinism is called TULIP. It's a theological system of salvation. It goes like this. Total depravity. That's the belief that all of us are so radically depraved and born in our sins that we have no ability to make a move towards God. We do nothing to contribute to salvation at all. Unconditional election. God chooses people not based on how they will respond to him, not based on anything about what he knows they will do. It's, it's completely arbitrary. God chooses everyone for either heaven or hell, and it's, it's all done in eternity past, and this has nothing to do with you. You can't do anything about it. It's all God's choice, his election. He chooses who's going to be saved. Another way to call that is double predestination. They call it double predestination because he's not just predestinating the saved, but also the damned. He's predestinating everyone who gets damned to go to hell and be tortured forever. Limited atonement is the belief that Christ did not die for the sins of the world. Christ did not die for everyone. Christ only died for the elect, the ones that God had chosen in the beginning to be saved. Irresistible grace. The belief that when God chooses you and bestows His grace upon you, you do not say no. You cannot say no. If God says you're going to be saved and ordains ahead of time when that's going to happen, you're going to be saved. It doesn't matter if you want to or not. It's irresistible. And then the last one is perseverance of the saints. Once you become saved, you cannot become unsaved. You have to remain saved. God, again, Calvin is radically God-oriented. He believes in the doctrine called the sovereignty of God, a way to, to describe the tulip system. The sovereignty of God is that you, the first principle is that you are a maggot. You're completely incapable of doing anything good at all. You're totally depraved. Okay, so that's just the first step. And then everything's on God. God chooses everyone ahead of time. God sends Christ to die for just those people. God gives grace to those that he chose. They can't resist it, and they're going to stay saved as, uh, forever because that's what God wants. So it's a whole system exalting and glorifying God is the, the heart of it, but it, it gets expressed in, these, in these, uh, these ways, and that's the Calvinist system. So there's absolutely no free will in the Calvinist system. God has free will. People don't, at least as far as salvation is concerned. Martin Luther also did believe in a very strong view of predestination. It wasn't double predestination like John Calvin. It was just regular predestination. So God chooses everyone who's going to be saved ahead of time. And Lutherans are pretty strong on that. One of Martin Luther's books was called On the Bondage of the Will. It was a response to Erasmus' book On the Freedom of the Will. So Martin Luther agrees with, John Calvin agrees with Martin Luther that predestination is a big part of salvation. It's not based on anything you do. It's based on God picking you to be on his team, so to speak, uh, ahead of time. They both believe in two sacraments, baptism and communion. 
So I put that under Lutherans, baptism and communion. And by baptism, I mean the, the Catholic sense of infant baptism makes you a citizen of the, the city, kind of a baptism ceremony. Although Luther does believe you can fall away from the faith. You can't fall away from the faith. So you see how Calvin goes a step further on, on these things? And I, I think that's, that's probably enough. Next week, we're going to get into Ulrich Zwingli and the Swiss Anabaptists and uh, some exciting stuff about people that pioneered, re-pioneered the idea of the home fellowship and got executed for it. So uh, we'll uh, talk about that next time. Thanks for coming. Well, that's it for today. If you want to watch the movie that I excerpted just a little bit of here in this episode, you can find it on various outlets. It's called Luther, and it came out in 2003, directed by Eric Till. I highly recommend it. It's a very well-done historical biography of Luther, and it you know, obviously dramatizes events a little bit more than they probably were, but it gives you a really good feel for what the world was like back then and just the incredible contribution of this man. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it on social media. And if you haven't already, why not leave a review in iTunes for Restitutio so that other people can find this podcast as well. Thanks for tuning in. I'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.